You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Thursday, July the 9th, 2020. I'm the host here, Ed Harrison. I'm going to be talking to my great colleague, Tyler Neville, for the first time here on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. But first, let's go to Peter Cooper with the stories of the day. Thanks, Ed. 1.31 million is this week's new job loss claims number in the U.S., slightly lower than the projected 1.38 million. Continuing claims also receded more than expected, but still remain above 18 million. In the U.S., the jobs picture continues to look bleak. And the story of unemployment is also seen through the veil of other headlines. Bed Bath & Beyond will be closing 20% of their stores in the next two years, while United Airlines informed nearly half of their workforce that they could be furloughed on October 1st. The government loans to airlines contain provisions that protected airline workers until September 30th. But United clearly isn't seeking to protect their workers beyond what is mandated. And with Brooks Brothers declaring bankruptcy yesterday, we're witnessing how job losses and insolvency are intertwined. But America is not the only country encountering mass unemployment. Europe is facing it as well. German airline Lufthansa announced on Tuesday plans to cut 20% of its leadership positions as well as 1,000 administrative positions. Lufthansa Group employs about 138,000 people. The airline also said that they had 22,000 staff positions that they no longer needed, but they would seek to avoid laying off those people. Aerospace juggernaut Airbus is set to cut 15,000 jobs, 11% of its workforce, as their orders have plummeted. The unionized workforce fiercely resisted these mass layoffs, and they staged a walkout protest. In Britain, things are not much better. A chief executive at Burger King warned they might have to cut 1,600 jobs in the UK alone. Pharmacy chain Boots announced 4,000 layoffs, and Rolls-Royce just announced it would let go of over 9,000 employees. While we can see the immediate impact of unemployment caused by the pandemic, the long-term effect could crystallize how certain industries were already anticipating job shrinkage prior to the coronavirus. For example, in Germany, the national platform Future for Mobility, a research agency backed by the German government, had released a report in January saying that by 2030, more than 400,000 jobs in the car industry will be gone. That's almost half of the 830,000 jobs that exist in the German car industry as of last year. This prediction comes in tandem with the rise of electric cars. Not as many workers are required to build electric cars, and there are the high costs and difficulties in retraining workers. Ferdinand Dodenherfe, director of the Center for Automatic Research, had said that the more realistic number would be 250,000 jobs lost in the next 10 years. 150,000 due to the switch to electromobility and 100,000 due to the pandemic. In Germany, some of those job losses may look like not replacing workers when others retire or leave. Regardless of the actual number or how the job losses occur, we need to consider the long-term effects that the pandemic could have on employment, not just in the here and now. We know that the bumpy road to reopening plays a critical factor in these elevated levels of unemployment. And we also know that there has been permanent job destruction in the global economy. And we might be tempted to believe that this is US specific. However, we're still seeing these residual effects of the lockdown in countries that appear to have the virus under control, demonstrating how this recession will be drawn out and difficult to recuperate from. And with that, let's go over to Ed and Tyler. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Peter. So, Tyler, it is great to talk to you. That was an interesting intro and, uh, you know, good intro into you. I want to talk to you today about uh, the other side of this whole jobs uh, thing. I would call it a terrible economy. And uh, you're someone who knows about the financial economy, that is, uh, hedge funds, flows, uh, the buy side. Tell people a little bit about yourself uh, before you went to Real Vision. Thanks, Ed. Uh, yeah, so my background basically has been I was on the sell side for a year and then probably about a decade on the buy side. I spent uh, time at hedge funds, a giant mutual fund, um, and pretty much traded equities and derivatives that whole time. So, Right. So you know uh, a lot about you know what's happening on the street, how much flows dominate um, liquidity, and what that means in terms of supply and demand and, and buoyancy in markets. Because to me, there's a huge disconnect between the stories that Peter was talking about in terms of uh, job losses here in the U.S. and also elsewhere and the buoyancy that you see in markets right now. And you and I, before we got on, we were talking about this yesterday. You were telling me about what you're seeing. And, you know, from what I heard from what you were talking about, it seems like you're seeing a lot of inflows, a lot of flows that support more bullishness in the market. Yeah, I mean, you look at the U.S. fiscal spending is now 35% of GDP, which is astro astronomical, like $7 trillion, right? Uh, but what I find most fascinating, and this is what no one talks about in the market, I think it's the biggest disconnect in the entire public market space, which is portfolio managers don't understand liquidity that well, and traders can't articulate it. And so what's happening on the microstructure part of things is really, really interesting. So with this new emergence of the retail trader uh, at like E-Trade, Schwab, Robinhood, essentially how that market functions is all those trades are now commission-free, right? You, you have a no hurdle rate to the market anymore. So what happens is they go and say, buy Tesla, right? So they package up that flow and they sell it to like a, a internal wholesaler, they call it. And that is now for, for Tesla, according to RBC, that's now 50% of the trading volume in Tesla. And what happens in internal wholesalers is you kind of remove that liquidity from the marketplace. So if you're a Fidelity or Wellington, 50% of that liquidity is now, you can't touch that, but you, it's getting printed to the tape. So at a giant institution, traders have this thing called TCA, trade cost analysis. And so when you're a trader and you see like volume going through and you're not catching any of that liquidity, if you have inflows, you're falling behind. Right. So Vanguard and you know BlackRock, they're basically just, they get money in and they buy. They get money in and they buy. And they're usually, I'd say, 5 to 7% of trading volume, which can move a stock a lot. So you have this, this retail liquidity that's printing the tape, and then you probably have money moving in from these giant institutions trying to catch up on the volume chasing the liquidity. 
and it's a really illiquid tape, but you wouldn't think it because the spreads are so tight. So that's what I'm seeing on, on the micro side of the market. You know, that's really interesting, too, because I was looking today, I think I retweeted it, about Elon Musk. He was, he was uh, um, making fun of short sellers and so forth because his stock has popped so much. I think it's up 22% this week alone. Uh, the, the stock is worth, in market cap terms, more than $250 billion, which is the combined total of all the U.S. automakers, including Fiat, Chrysler, and uh, Toyota Motor uh, combined, right? So yeah. it, it is really incredible. Um, t tell me a little bit more about whether those flows, how long they can last. I mean, is it the case that this can uh, go against all of that negative uh, real economy data that we're seeing uh, more recently? God, that's a trillion dollar question. I, I don't know, but there's, there's other issues in the marketplace where I think it can go on a lot longer than we think, possibly even past the election. Because, okay. you know, all right, take, for example, let's start on a, a real macro level. In, in 1997, there was like 7,000 public companies. Now, this is, everyone knows this stat. You know, now it's like 3,500. So you can actually make the argument that the market's actually acting way more rational than you know, people think. Everyone wants to short this market. They're so bearish. When they look around, businesses are shut down. But $7 trillion of, of you know, basically the Fed and fiscal spending is coming to the market and it's going into 3,500 stocks, right? Then take away a trillion a year about in buybacks that remove the float, right? So you have a shrinking supply of stock, a, sh a shrinking supply of float. And if you go back to Mike Green is like the only one that talks about this, which is kind of incredible. You have, if you go back to the 2000 boom um, in, in, in tech stocks, what you had was a high insider uh, holder base, which basically held the float. So only 5% of the shares outstanding were trading, right. which actually was a main cause of the boom in 2000. You know, and, and no one really concentrates on that. One, one of my favorite things is like, if you look at the amount of CFAs that came out of, you know, that, are, that now have CFAs, it's gone up it's tripled in 20 years and it's gone up 10% a year for the past 10. People love fundamental analysis because it's sexy, right? Like you get to say, you know, things like, you know, convertibles and, you know, all these fancy, you know, PE ratios and EBITDA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the least sexy thing is analyzing, you know, the market structure. And, and Mike has done that incredibly well and basically said, you know, liquidity is horrible. The floats are down. Right. And, you know, you, you have not only that, but this is the biggest headwind. It's the incentives of passive versus active, which is the pricing on active funds. Like I was at a giant asset manager. It was 1% to, to manage, you know, a mutual fund. Every baby boomer in the country owned this fund. And what's happening is they're slowly like selling out of those mutual funds that are underperforming and reallocating to passive. Right. What Mike yeah. says, you know, if you're an active manager, you generally hold a 5% cash allocation. Whereas if you're passive, you hold, you know, 10 bips, which is a giant bullish thing for the market because you slowly sell and you see these, you know, pullbacks in the market, but it gets reallocated to passive. 
And that chart is basically just, you know, a complete, you know, diametrically opposed in, in terms of flows. But I think that really will stay the powerful moving force in the market till we get like a political event, which is Hong Kong dollar depegged, Saudi dollar depegged, um, or maybe the government comes in and says uh, antitrust to Google, Facebook, you know, all, all those big things. Right. That, and, and, you know, uh, I was looking at some of the, uh, the inflows, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, ETF inflows, and I was looking, all of them are, are, are positive. In fact, the numbers that I saw said ETF inflows in 2020 are already the level that they were for the full year 2019. I'm talking, you know, uh, L LQD, this is, uh, you know, corporate. We're talking triple Qs, uh, you know, uh, S&P 500 e ETFs, the whole gamut, you know, it's massive inflows. So there, even in a um, an, an economy where you have a double-digit unemployment, you're still seeing the inflows into uh, into shares, and many of those are doing passive strategies, as you're talking about. But here's the question I have: is, is is that when you have a situation where you have these massive inflows into these mutual funds, and you have market cap weighted funds? Uh, for, uh, market cap weighted indices like S&P that they're going into with their passive strategies, is, isn't there a, a need for them to therefore leg into uh, these, these shares that are already being bid up by retail investors like Amazon, Netflix, Tesla, whatever it might be? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, they're market cap weighted. So, you know, those dollars come in, they have to be allocated towards those weightings. Um, and, and what else, you know, that also causes a strain on the active manager. And for fun, I was like, checking out um, Fidelity's contract fund. It's like $122 billion ran by Will Danoff. But his top like 15 holdings are basically all momentum stocks. And just because right. he, he's got to keep up with all the inflows into passive, right? So it, it creates like these bubble herd-like effects. And, you know, so what are the, uh, the hedge funds doing in terms of dealing with the underperformance? Because there was a decent amount of underperformance. I think I was telling you before, I was talking to Charlie McElligot about this, and he was saying that if you look at the March uh, lows, uh, there was a lot of volatility there. And the, the vol from that three months ago is falling off in terms of the, the value at risk models that people use in order to decide how much leverage they, they have. So here we are in June, July, all of that's in the past. So we have volatility numbers going lower in your VAR model, telling you you can leverage up. And therefore, to a degree that you underperformed in the market, you can actually get in on the bullish side and, and, you know, with leverage into those positions. So what are you seeing in actual fact in terms of what, uh, what hedge funds are doing? Are they chasing returns in, in that same way? Yeah, I think they have to. They have a high fee structure, right? Like the two and twenty model is like getting completely annihilated. Like you'll you'll you're lucky unless you're Stevie Cohen at point seventy two, but and a couple other funds. But 
people are trying to raise capital at like one in 10 now in hedge funds. Right. And that's basically a function of endowments and pensions basically saying, you know what, we're not going to pay up anymore for mediocre performance. We're going to go to private equity. Um, but one of the interesting things that's happening as well, you mentioned, you know, levering up is you watch the bond market rally. Like I think the 10 years at what, 60 bips and the 30 years at, you know, 130, I believe, like pretty much super lows. Uh, one of the interesting things Mike Green said also is to give him props is like owning treasuries is essentially you're owning a put that you're getting paid for. Right. When you're a risk arm guy and like you just lever up against all that collateral, right? So all these bonds that have rallied, now they have more firepower to, to, to go to war with, right? And so you seek the highest return. So you can actually make the argument that with the rates the way they are, the market's acting pretty rational where it's going to be highest growing stocks, right? And the ones that are super levered, which is, you know, you have a lot of debt on your balance sheet. Generally, those are the older companies. Underneath the really fast-growing stocks, you have these, you know, the market's down, I think, 13% if you take away the fangs. Um, and those are generally ridden with debt. You know, the really fast-growing stocks are capitalized with equity, and they have lots of cash on their balance sheet. You know, the market makes sense in a, in a lot of ways um, from that perspective. And I think, you know, Lacey Hunt says, debt is a tax on future uh, earnings or income, right? So what you're seeing is a real discrepancy between really fast growing things and then legacy older things, which is like, you know, ETFs and old active managers that charge high fees, right? Why, why the heck would you pay? It's just a better product. You know, why would you pay an active manager in this setting to underperform if you can outperform with, you know, less price. Right. I mean, and, and you're outperforming for a longer period of time. I mean, supposedly the reason that you pay is because that outperformance doesn't last, you know, eight years, 10 years, the way that it has been lasting. And so therefore you make up for it on, on, on the downtrends. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, we're not seeing, I mean, we had a 35% loss in March, but then the market rallied up and we're up like, you know, 45% from the lows. Yeah. It, it's crazy land. But then at the same time, like what you're seeing is, you know, these, these pensions, look at CalPERS. They're now saying, you know, we're going to use some leverage here. Right. That's my next question. Right. And they're looking for returns. So like, how are you bearish on risk assets? Like for super fast growth things, when one of the biggest pension funds in the world just said, at any dislocation, we're going to basically use leverage. Right. It's, it's really hard to do, even though I completely agree with all the bears economically, where it's just a complete disconnect. And one of, the, one of the most fascinating things, though, I think you're seeing is you might stifle volatility um, superficially in the market. But I think you're seeing what Chris Cole calls is like you, you transmute the low volatility into social upheaval. And I think that's a lot of the stuff you're seeing politically right now um, is – you know, all these things are, are vol dampeners in the market, but the majority of people are, are kind of left behind, which is causing like basically inequality. All these things are, are kind of breaking globalization, uh, inequality at massive, you know, levels. And, and I think 
we're just not, we haven't seen the blow off top just yet and all that stuff. Right. You know, uh, that, that is the, the, um, how, how can you put it? That is the, um, the elephant in the room in terms of how this works, because, you know, the, what, what I'm having go through my mind as you're talking about that is the concept that let's just say that we have a W type recovery. Okay. So, uh, we had, uh, w you know, we had, we went down, we did a V shape up and then we start to roll over towards another sort of downtrend. Um, what happened? What happens if all of the liquidity that you talked about makes the disconnect continue, even in a situation where uh, you know we start to roll over for the second time? That, that that's a, even more of a disconnect between the real economy and the financial economy. Is that something that could even happen? Uh, how does it manifest itself in terms of that social unrest? I think you start seeing people, you know ticketing for Jeff Bezos to get taxed at higher rates. You know, you're, you're seeing tax structures already kind of, kind of popping up in the, the election. I, I think that'll be a strong talking point for these guys. Um, because it probably one Biden will, will really hold on to. Um, so that's where I see it coming most, you know, the other, the other interesting thing that's happening, I, I'm calling this all like generational arbitrage. Mm, right. There's, people get the heck out of the coasts, which are generally millennials leaving really high priced um, real estate and going to places like Austin, Texas, where, where I am now, um, or, or Nashville or Denver. And it really is like this generational change. And you have two, two people from the gerontocracy running for president, basically trying to hold on to the legacy systems. Uh, and I think they're, the reason why you can't really be bearish is because they're going to do everything, everything in their power to, to pull out all the tools in financial chicanery to keep this thing going. Right. In a lot of senses, like if you look at the venture capital markets, they barely had a, a hiccup. Like they are funding companies left and right now, you know? And I, I think that will keep this thing going as long as there's some promise of, of future growth there somewhere and the funding doesn't get pulled from the, uh, the endowments or pension funds. Right. And, you know, you were talking about the gerontocracy. Uh, immediately, I go back to uh, PEMCO, or, or not PEMCO, CalPERS, and uh, the retirement crisis, right? Because uh, we, we actually worked in the retirement crisis series uh, that we posted up on RV um, I guess it was like seven, eight months ago now. What are your thoughts about the retirement crisis in the midst of what we're talking about now? That's sort of a, a secular trend. Is it something that it's been arrested for now, or is that breathing down our neck underneath, despite the fact that, you know, because CalPERS, that's what they're doing, right? They're trying to stop that from becoming a problem. Yeah, I, I, that's really the engine of it all, is you have this you know, basically baby boomers have a lifestyle that they want to keep up and they want kind of millennials and, and Gen Zers to pay for it, right? They, they own all the, the assets. As long as they keep bonds at yields, low yields, then they don't have to do any work anymore. And, and they don't have to cut their pensions. They, they can do all the political promises. I think you're going to see 
maybe that just keeps going and, and pensions get funded with printed money at some point and then inflation becomes a problem. And, and we are seeing that. One, one of the, the most interesting things in the market, um, Teddy Valet had a great chart on this today, which is uh, five-year uh, real yields are super negative. And that mimics like basically momentum stocks perfectly and gold stocks as well. So those I think are just in secular bull markets. Like they're not going to let deflation happen because if that happens, they have to answer to, you know, unfunded pensions, um, lifestyle. They're just going to print, you know, gazillion dollars. And I think that's the spot we're at right now where it's, this might be a, a raging bull market in the face of an economy that's never been worse. Like UBI could be a real thing. Like a Andrew Yang could, could be right where just like, you know, maybe that's the debt jubilee that everyone talks about is you just hand out money. Right. You know, scary, scary prospect. And, you know, I'm going to leave it on that note. Uh, I, I think uh, we'll, let's let's have everyone savor more from Tyler Neville. It's, you know, it's been a, I think it's been a sobering and almost scary uh, initial uh, foray into the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Tyler, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, though. Thanks, Ed. I hope I uh, pissed off all your subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, man. You too. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.